Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. Uh, please don't forget, uh, without your financial support, moral support, sharing social media support, uh, we can't do this. I'll be back in just a few seconds with Eve's Angler. We're going to talk about the self-righteous Canadians. Canadian governments like to portray themselves as the peacekeepers, the more reasonable country that tries to mitigate the excesses of American society and its military machine. Of course, Canada pitches in troops when necessary, but only when it seems like a just and legal war, or so goes the self-serving and self-righteous narrative. Well, Ease Angler has written a new book that exposes the true North's role in serving and making massive profits from the U.S. military-industrial complex. The book is titled Stand on Guard for Whom? A People's History of the Canadian Military. In the Canadian National Anthem, O Canada, the phrase we stand on guard for thee is repeated three times in four stanzas. Just who we stand on guard for is never made clear. But when the first version of the anthem was written in 1880, the main threat to stand on guard from was coming from the South. That said, a 1908 version made Canada's military role clear at the time. Quote, at Britain's side, whate'er betide, unflinchingly, we will stand with hearts we sing, God save the king. Guide then one empire wide, do we implore. Canadian elites and military have always found it profitable to support empire. And with the coming to power of Prime Minister Lester Pearson, Canada became a full-fledged junior partner of the American global hegemony. In fact, it was President Kennedy that helped put Pearson in power in the first place, in a flagrant manipulation of a Canadian election. More on that later. None of what follows is meant to denigrate the courage and self-sacrifice of thousands of Canadians who served in the Canadian Armed Forces. My father was one of them, flying as a navigator for the RCAF from 1939 to 1945 in some of the most dangerous missions of the war. It was typical of the Canadian government in World War I and World War II to allow Canucks to be fodder in what amounted to suicidal missions and often pointless ones. My father consciously volunteered to join the Air Force in order to fight Hitlerite fascism, but he never had any illusions about Canada's role in supporting fascism in the lead-up to the war, including, as Eves writes in his book, quote, Canada largely sided with the fascists during the Spanish Civil War. Ottawa refused repeated requests from Spain's elected government to sell it weaponry. In April 1937, Ottawa passed the Foreign Enlistment Act in a bid to block Canadians from fighting on behalf of the Republican government, end quote. That is, fighting against the dictator Franco, who was supported by Hitler and Mussolini. My father's brother volunteered and made it to Spain in spite of attempts by the Canadian government to obstruct the members of the MacPap Battalion. Eves writes further, further down, during this period, Canada found no fault in supplying war materials to the fascist Japanese army that occupied Korea and massacred, ma I'm sorry, and massacred the Chinese in Manchuria. In the years leading up to the start of the European front of World War II, 
Japan was the third largest importer of Canadian non-ferrous metals. Every year on Remembrance Day, Canadian children are taught to recite a poem written by a Montreal doctor, John McRae, in 1915, after thousands of Canadians were slaughtered in Ypres, Belgium. The poem begins, in Flanders fields, the poppies blow. It ends with a call to arms. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. I think it'd be better if kids are taught to read a piece by another Montreal doctor, Norman Bethune, who volunteered to go to Spain and China to fight against fascism. In 1939, he wrote, Our wars of aggression, wars for conquest of colonies, then just big business? Yes, it would seem so however much the perpetrators of such national crimes seek to hide their true purpose under banners of high-sounding abstractions and ideals. They make war to capture markets by murder, raw materials by rape. They find it cheaper to steal than to exchange, easier to butcher than to buy. Bethune continues, Behind all stands that terrible, implacable god of business and blood, whose name is Prophet. Money is like an insatiable mullock, demanding its interest, its return, and will stop at nothing, at not even murder of millions, to satisfy its greed. Behind the army stands the militarists. Behind the militarists stands finance, capital, and the capitalist. Brothers in blood, companions in crime. Bethune ends with, Such an organization of human society as permits them to exist must be abolished. These men make the wounds. As much as Canadians like to think we're better than that, the real history shows we're not. Now joining us to discuss his new book, Stand on Guard for Whom, is Yves Engler. Yves is a Montreal-based activist and author. He's published 11 books, including House of Mirrors, Justin Trudeau's Foreign Policy. Thanks for joining us, Yves. Thanks for having me. So... You trace quite a bit of history in the book. Um, I'm going to kind of jump ahead and in future interviews uh, pick up some of the other pieces of history. But as, as people that watch uh, the analysis know, I'm working with Ellsberg on a film about nuclear weapons. So I jumped right to your chapter about Canada's role in uh, developing uh, the apocalypse, apocalyptic weapons. So start start with the history of Canada and nuclear weapons. I guess it starts with uranium. Yeah, uh, Canadian uh, uranium um, was used uh, in uh, the U.S. Uh, nuclear weapons uh, uh, program and ultimately uh, the bombs dropped on uh, in Japan, which uh, in fact, uh, in the late 1990s, the Dene people who the, the uranium was taken from their land uh, with little of their own uh, uh, control over. Um, they actually apologized uh, to the people of Hiroshima and Nagasaki for for the bombs being uh, uh, dropped. Um, but Canadian government spent huge amounts of money researching nuclear weapons during World War II, coordinating with the British and the Americans. The British nuclear weapons program actually moved to Canada uh, for safety reasons during World War II. 
and uh, Canadian officials were signatories to the um, Quebec Agreement between the U.S. and the British around nuclear weapons development. And Canadian officials were aware that the, the nuclear weapons were going to be dropped on Japan. Um, so there's a there's a history of, of Canadian support for nuclear weapons. Uh, the Prime Minister, after the Hiroshima and Nagasaki are, are bombed, says that he's in his in his diary uh says that he's happy that this took place on the asian races versus the european races reflecting a certain kind of racism um but but i think that the canadian involvement in nuclear weapons uh production and then um Canadian military having nuclear weapons in, in future years is really kind of reflective of how Canada was very close uh, uh, to the British Empire, the Canadian military very close to the British Empire, and then during World War II became very close uh, to the U.S. military. So it's sort of an outgrowth of, of Canada's kind of unique history of, of uh, close ties to the, uh, to the two uh, great uh, uh, military empires of the past uh, couple hundred years. As, as the American economic uh, investment, power, control of Canada grew, uh, you know, even before the First World War, uh, a lot of the railroad expansion in Canada was actually American capital. In between the wars, the Americans increased their position enormously. Uh, off the top of my head, I believe by the Second World War had overtaken British investment. Um, but Dief Prime Minister Diefenbaker, who was in power in the late 50s and uh, early 60s, uh, uh, he's, he was still playing this sort of positioning of trying to play off the Americans and British to some extent, uh, ha having a certain uh, uh, independence uh, from the U.S., um, which, which pissed the hell out of Kennedy. And it came to a head over a couple of issues, which which directly connected with nuclear weapons. Uh, tell us that story. Yeah, well, in the October 1962 blockade of Cuban Missile Crisis, the Diefenbaker government was unwilling to just accept U.S. position. Most importantly, putting NORAD on uh, on high alert, uh, and uh, that angered. The U.S. Uh, and so basically Diefenbaker and the foreign minister were not happy to just go along with the U.S. position. In fact, Canadian naval vessels, uh, without any uh, political directive, um, did in fact support the U.S. Uh, blockade of Cuba. But basically the main thing that Kennedy wanted, which was the NORAD high alert and the, and the full political subservience, they didn't do. And, they, and, and, and basically the head of the Canadian naval at the base in, in Halifax uh, actually deployed Canadian naval vessels, acted like they were part of a training mission, but in fact they were just supporting the U.S. without um, having any piece of, of paper or any directive to do so. He basically broke the, uh, the, um, the proper civilian uh, military command uh, structure. Um, but but well, let, me inter let me interrupt. There was proper military civilian command structure. Just the civilian command structure was in Washington, not Ottawa. Yeah, no, no, exactly. And, and, and it's actually totally surreal to read some military historians. Like Jack Granitstein points out, this is the, the worst breaking of the uh, proper command structure in, in Canadian military history. 
notes this, this this is a very pro-military historian, but there's actually a number of military historians that I quote in the in the book that that uh, actually act like this was a good thing that the the naval commander just ignored uh, the political directive and just followed the political directive from from Washington versus what he you know what what uh, what he what he, <laughs> the people who are supposed to be the and, and let me add one other note it's it's Pierre Trudeau you know the current Trudeau's father when he was prime minister. He gets all the credit for Canada maintaining a sort of independent policy on relations with Cuba. But actually, it's not true. It was Diefenbaker that established that and defied the Americans and maintained normal diplomatic and trade relations with Cuba. Yeah. But go on with the story. Yeah, yeah. So but there's actually more to that that story as well. But 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 the the um, the result of uh, Diefenbaker's position on the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I think more generally, there was a Diefenbaker, it should be noted that he wins the election in part criticizing Lester Pearson, then as foreign affairs minister, his role in the Suez crisis, right? So the British, the French, and the Israelis invade Egypt in 1956. And the famous peacekeeping mission that Lester Pearson uh, comes up with was done in conjunction with John Foster Dulles. And it was a way the Americans opposed the British French Israeli invasion. And, and it was the peacekeeping mission was a way to basically uh, help the, the British out of this disastrous invasion. But it was the, the clear diplomatic break of Canada being tied to the British Empire and then being tied to the to the American Empire. They Pierce Okay, let me let me just add another fast note because we have a lot of American viewers. So Diefenbaker was the head of the Conservative Party. He had maintained more relations with the British and Pearson became the head of the Liberal Party and and Pearson and the Suez crisis as you mentioned is a, a, uh, an example of how much uh, Pearson was allied with the Americans. Exactly, exactly. So, so, so there's this is part of the background to Kennedy you know, being closer to Pearson and hostile to Diefenbaker, and what happened with Cuba just amped up that uh, longer history of tension or, or political uh, disagreement. And so, and then Kennedy helps basically have the Diefenbaker government collapse. Uh, in uh, in early 1963, and there's a series of parts to that, and everything from leaking all kinds of negative uh, press reports uh, in the U.S. media around Diefenbaker, U.S. officials repeatedly uh, referring to calling Diefenbaker a liar. The head of NATO comes to Ottawa in early 1963 to basically say that uh, Diefenbaker is refu- refusing to take uh, Bullmark missiles is is undermining uh, Canada's role in, in NATO alliance. So there's a whole series of measures that Kennedy pursues to, to precipitate the fall of the Diefenbaker government. And then when that uh, happens, then then there's a series of measures to to support Pearson during the 1963 election. The the most important one is his uh, pollster Lou Harris um, is sent uh, to his his meaning Kennedy's and Kennedy's pollster uh, is sent to uh, to support the Liberal government or the Liberal Party uh, Pearson uh, during that election. And uh, you know previously the Labour Party in Britain had asked to uh, have Lou Harris support them. Uh, that was refused, but but then, uh, you know, it was granted to uh, to Pearson. Uh, there's other claims that 
the Diefenbaker uh, and other uh, conservative officials claim that the, the the CIA actually was involved in in throughout the election campaign and sort of undermining their 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 campaign. Some of that's never really been you know fully. Uh, well, but one of the things that is, I believe, now factually proved is that Kennedy, and I don't know if it's through the CIA or not, but he arranged for Lou Harris, the pollster, to get a phony passport under a false name and and go to Ottawa. Uh, my old colleague who helped me found, uh, create this TV show, uh, Counterspin, uh, he says it was a standing joke amongst journalists at the time of that election that Pearson's campaign was being run by Lou Harris out of the basement of the U.S. Embassy, li literally out of the U.S. Embassy. And he brought all these modern polling methods uh, and to, to help message and create uh, Pearson's campaign and defeat Diefenbaker. But let's talk a little bit more about that Bomark missile issue, because that's, that's a big deal. Kennedy wanted nuclear-armed Bomark missiles on Canadian territory as part of this SAGE radar system was supposed to shoot down uh, Soviet bombers when they come in. Uh, but Diefenbaker said no, partly because, if I understand it correctly, he said it would just make Canada a target. Is that right? Yeah, he 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 was uh, concerned uh, of making Canada a target, and I think that it was also there was a certain degree of ambivalence towards nuclear weapons, uh, of course, and also Diefenbaker had been ambivalent towards NORAD which is set up in 1958 and it's it's the, the negotiations for that begin uh, earlier before he 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 becomes prime minister and it's um it's uh it's viewed that the military basically forced uh Diefenbaker into uh agreeing to NORAD I believe it's initially signed in 1957 and comes into comes into effect in 58 and the the military basically forced it upon uh uh Diefenbaker and the Bomark missiles which were uh, stationed I believe most mostly in North Bay Ontario I think there were some in 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 uh, in Quebec as well um, effectively, they were under the control of the NORAD headquarters in Colorado, obviously. So basically, effectively under U.S., uh, uh, not effectively, were under U.S. Uh, uh, military control. There were, you know, Canadians that are part of the NORAD command structure as well. There was ambivalence around that question. And I think it just fit within a kind of more general questioning of U.S. Uh, military power. Now, I, I'm I'm kind of a little bit ambivalent around Diefenbaker because he was somebody who was supportive of the British Empire, and it's not like the British military and the British Empire was was some sort of you know democratic or or humanitarian force. Um, uh, so you know it's a kind of a, a battle between two different uh, uh, political outlooks that I don't really agree with. Um, but but certainly um, the uh, the extent to which Kennedy and the U.S. played a role in precipitating Diefenbaker government's fall, but also Pearson's rise, is is one that's a, a pretty scandalous story. And just one little anecdote in this: Pearson himself tells the story, uh, just the extent to which. Kennedy was sort of intervening. He tells the story about how uh, he uh, Kennedy wanted to meet him in person in uh, uh, during this period uh, when he was in the head of the opposition in the in the 1962 uh, end of 1962. That 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 he he asks. Uh, uh, to have a justification for Pearson to go down to Boston, um, uh, he he asks Pearson if he has a honorary degree from Harvard. Pearson already has an honorary degree from Harvard. He says, "Do you have an honorary degree from Boston College?" I think Pearson already had an honorary degree from Boston College. Then he says, "How about uh, B B U, Boston University?" And he he comes up 
P Kennedy orchestrates getting Pearson an honorary degree from Boston University to have a reason uh, uh, for Pearson to go down and then to have private meetings with uh, with uh, Kennedy on the side. Because he's leader, because he's not the prime minister, he's leader of the opposition and it wouldn't be appropriate otherwise. And he was already under, there's already criticism of Pearson as being sort of a U.S. stooge and and being really close to to Kennedy and to Washington. So so to have a, this, you know, other, other rationale uh, and also obviously that would also add to Pearson's kind of, uh, you know, media aura that he gets, you know, lots of honorary degrees from from prestigious institutions. Um, but that just gives you a sense of how how much uh, Pearson uh, and, and, you know, I did a whole book about Pearson, but Pearson had really been aligned with uh, with the U.S. going back to right, you know, during World War Two and right after World War Two on questions from from partition plan on Palestine to the Korean War to supporting the ouster of Arbenz in Guatemala, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, let me just add a couple of notes to this. Uh, of course, I agree with you about the British Empire, which has plenty of blood on its hands. But uh, the extent to which Diefenbaker still maintained a certain amount of, if you can call it independence, uh, dependence on Britain rather than total dependence on the United States, uh, the the uh, Pearson election was really a watershed where from then on, both parties, conservative and liberals, became complete junior partner supplicants of the United States. And, and, and Diefenbaker was uh, thrown out, you know, overthrown within the conservative party. Um, but it, it's a it's a, a, an important watershed moment in, in Canadian politics and Canadian history. And, and this Bullmark missile thing, a, a lot of it was used to defeat Diefenbaker, not just because Kennedy wanted Bullmark missiles in Canada, but there was a lot of Cold War hysteria in Canada, sort of look weak on fighting communism and fighting the Soviet Union and all that. That was also meant to help Pearson. Um, and, and in fact, as I understand it now from talking to Ellsberg and, and others like Lester Ernest, who worked on the SAGE radar program, which is the one that controlled these missiles. The, the SAGE radar was supposed to detect the Russian plane, Soviet planes, and then the missiles would be guided by computers to go hit them, which in itself was insane, because over Canadian territory, you would have nuclear uh, Soviet bombers hit by nuclear weapons over Canadian territory. And that's what they wanted uh, Diefenbaker to agree to, two nuclear blasts over Canada. Uh, I mean, the whole thing was bloody insane. The only other part to it is Sage never worked. If people that watch my interviews with Lester Ernest, the whole thing was bullshit. Uh, they had never solved the problem of radar jamming. And so they spent a trillion dollars over 25 years on this uh, uh, MIT uh, thing. And it was just a boondoggle that, that a lot of MIT and a bunch of contractors made money out of and wouldn't have worked for one minute. But, but, and Kennedy knew it, but he needed to rub Diefenbaker's nose in this Bullmark missile thing. They wanted to establish the, print, the uh, principle or precedent of nuclear weapons on Canadian soil. And he just didn't damn well like that Diefenbaker had said no. And apparently they also wanted Canada to have uh, in Europe that Canadian forces should have some nuclear weapons. And apparently Diefenbaker didn't agree with that either. 
Um, so there was an anti-nuclear thing uh, on, on. In fact, in that in that sense, uh, there's, there were sections in Washington that sort of agreed with him, but not dominant. Anyway, let, let's let's move on. Uh, but just to sum all this up. Um, essentially, the uh, United States carries out a regime change in Canada uh, in order to assert its full uh, power over the Canadian foreign policy and certainly military policy. But that ain't all. Uh, let, let's go on. Uh, sh should we go on to can-do reactors at this point? Yeah. So, so you know, in the book, I, I suggest that after the nine um, uh, countries that have nuclear weapons, Canada is kind of next in line as the playing the biggest role in nuclear proliferation. And uh, one element of that is the exporting of can-do reactors, uh, nuclear reactors to uh, at least a half dozen countries. Um, India uses the, uh, the Cyrus uh, reactor to, um, to uh, develop its nuclear weapons. Um, and part of the reason they choose the Canadian is because there was very weak uh, safeguards in the uh, in the agreement. Uh, then Pakistan, of course, responds uh, and also uses uh, Canadian uh, uh, reactors, uh, candy reactor that are exported to uh, Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan then then uh, uh, uses the exports Canada already made to. Uh, uh, to them to to develop nuclear weapons, um, so so the Canadian government, you know, the Canadian government is even involved in like in in nuclear um, uh, cooperation with the apartheid South African apartheid uh, white white uh, uh, regime uh, until uh, fairly late late in the apartheid uh, game. Um, so, so the Canadian government has been, you know, heavily involved. There's, there's this uranium exports, huge amounts of uranium exports to the U.S. over many decades for a long period. It was after World War II. It was, I think, the fourth biggest uh, Canadian uh, export uh, uranium. Um, so, so the Canadian government has um, has this history of of being. Uh, uh, Un, unconcerned about uh, nuclear prol proliferation. Also, there's a, the Canadian military wanted uh, Canada to acquire uh, uh, nuclear weapons and and put forward numerous proposals over the years, um, explicitly lobbying uh, for Canada to acquire uh, uh, nuclear weapons. Um, because uh, they want they wanted to be you know part of the you know the big boys if you like, and. Um, and so uh, the Canadian government, and then also you know through NATO, right? Canada has uh, has um, has supported NATO nuclear weapons uh, that goes up right up until today, and has opposed efforts to um, uh, to uh, to you know rid rid the world of of uh, of these uh, ab abhorrent um, uh, mass uh, mass killers. Well, let's go back to India and Pakistan for a minute, because it may be that there is actually no more immediate danger to the world than a potential nuclear conflict between India and Pakistan. Um, you've got in, in Pakistan, you have a military that essentially runs the government, and that military is highly, highly infiltrated by al-Qaeda and various other uh, Islamist, Islamic extremists. Uh, it, 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 a lot of uh, fanatical uh, religion within the Pakistan military, uh, up to very senior levels. Um, and then you have Hindu 
nationalist fascist in power in, in, in New Delhi, uh, you have two sides of the equation of, of an extremely tense situation. Both nuclear armed uh, countries, both where things could easily get out of hand, where there, there, there's outbreaks of actual fighting over Kashmir every so often. Um, extremely dangerous situation. And Canada had a lot to do with, with, with providing the reactors that kicked this whole thing off. Uh, if these countries went to nuclear war, it wouldn't just devastate the millions and millions of people in such, you know, all throughout this part of, uh, of the world. It would also create a kind of minor nuclear winter. Um, and then the other thing that's in the works right now is there's some pressure building in the United States uh, and by the way, let me say, uh, there's a lot of religious fanaticism within the American military. I don't think anyone can let that go unsaid when you're talking about religious fanaticism in a military. But there's a lot of pressure building to end the test ban treaty. And apparently, if the nuclear test ban treaty ends, it's going to quickly speed up the development of an H-bomb in India and Pakistan. And if, if they were ever to go to war with H-bombs rather than the older atomic bombs, uh, that, that is apparently, according to a lot of the scientists that study climate change and nuclear winter, enough to create a global nuclear winter, which means essentially, you know, the end of most human civilization. So, and, and if, am I correct that it wasn't unknown to Canada when they sold these reactors? that they would probably be weaponized, even though the Pakistan and India claimed they wouldn't? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that. But what I am sure about is that the Canadian government uh, uh, in the agreements were, was very lax on, uh, specifically with the Cyrus, with the, to India, on the, the, uh, you know, what they could do with it. And, and, and the Indians chose the Canadian uh, um, uh, technology to, because of precisely for that reason. After India tested its first nuclear weapon, the Canadian government brought in restrictions on um, any exports to India. Uh, but in fact, about a decade ago, the uh, Harper government, when they uh, sort of kind of really sort of recharged relations with, with India, which was partly about, about uh, sort of concern around China, um, they restarted the uh, nuclear exports and, uh, and uh, uh, I believe there were even officials, if I remember correctly, there were even officials from uh, can do uh, uh, that that came on the trade mission with Harper to I guess it was probably to New Delhi, and it was a little bit controversial at the time that the Harper government was changing some of the restrictions. So yeah, I mean the Canadian government has a has a certain degree of ambi ambivalence, and 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 and. and, and they have hostility towards things like the, the TPNW, the Treaty for the Pro Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And that's, you know, the Trudeau government, when there was a, the initial UN in, uh, I believe it's late 2016, discussions about holding a, a conference to try to come forward with an agreement to uh, work towards banning nuclear weapons, the Trudeau government uh, voted against it. Then Trudeau himself mocked it when they held a conference and about two thirds of the world's countries attended. Canada didn't attend. And then when the uh, treaty was signed, um, Canada has, you know, refused to sign. And then it, it, it was finally, you know, it hit the, the 50 signatures, 50 countries signing. So it became, it came into uh, effect in, uh, in January of this year, uh, continued, the, the Canadian government continued uh, to uh, oppose it and, and kind of a, a Amazingly, throughout this whole thing, 
they say they they want to rid the world of nuclear weapons, right? So they 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 have like quite good rhetoric on nuclear weapons, but they are unwilling to sign this landmark international treaty to try to move towards abolishing nuclear weapons. And I and I think that kind of fits with their you know their their stuff on uh, concern around India and Pakistan potentially going to uh, uh, getting in a, in, a, in a nuclear war is that that you know they're more concerned with um, with uh, their NATO uh, alliance and they're more concerned with the you know Canadian companies that are involved like SNC Lavalin and others that are involved in in nuclear exports than they are with the you know existential threat that um, that nuclear war poses to uh, to uh, humanity. I just add one quick note on Pakistan. It was the Reagan government that also facilitated or looked the other way at the very least as Pakistan developed its bomb, even though there, I believe there'd been a law passed in, in Congress uh, banning any support for a Pakistani bomb. Uh, when, a, when Pakistan collaborated with Reagan in uh, arms shipments to Afghanistan, uh, that Reagan agreed to let the Pakistanis develop a bomb without any interference. Uh, the new the new German government just elected uh, the foreign minister is from the Green Party, and apparently they're going to take a position advocating NATO uh, issue a no first strike of nuclear weapons declaration. Um, and that, if I understand it correctly, that isn't just a, a declaration. If if anybody gets serious about that, it's also about what weaponry you have, because certain weaponry really is designed for first strike. So then you have to start seriously looking at, like ICBMs are first strike weapons. There, there's no, a second strike doesn't mean much. Uh, the, uh, where is Canada on this issue of no first strike, do you know? I, I think that they've been opposed to the, some of those uh, discussions within uh, NATO historically. I don't know where the, the, the position is now. I know that the uh, German government has talked about uh, um, uh, some sort of, I forget the exact terminology, but uh, essentially observer status within the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And I believe the Norwegian, the new Norwegian government has also, uh, uh, is going to attend as an observer. And that's um, the, the Germans following suit is kind of viewed as starting to, the snow potential snowball within NATO around, um, uh, around, not support for the TPNW, but some level of kind of interest in it. And, and thus far, the Canadian government has been, you know, completely hostile to, uh, to any, uh, any movements on that front. Now, it's a well-known laughable secret that Israel has nuclear weapons. Uh, everyone knows Israel has nuclear weapons. Everyone knows Israel has not signed the non-proliferation agreement. Um, when I say everyone, uh, it's, it's, it's practically acknowledged. And Jimmy Carter, former president, came out, I guess, the first senior American to say so after he was president, said that Israel has nuclear weapons. Uh, but there's been attempts to make, to get Israel to actually sign international accords on weapons, and, and they refuse. But what's, where's Canada been on that? Well, the the Harper government uh, isolated Canada against uh, most of the world in a vote in 2010-2011 around um, a conference uh, to uh, to discuss making the Middle East an, uh, uh, 
nuclear weapons free zone. They voted against a couple different initiatives that went in that direction. So the Canadian government has been, uh, uh, I don't believe there's been any uh, new uh, effort on that front during the, the current government, the Trudeau government, but, but the Harper government was quite explicitly hostile and, and that got a, you know, a little bit of uh, attention at the time. So yeah, the Canadian government is, is definitely kind of follows along with the, with the U.S. on the, on, uh, on uh, Israel. And, and, and uh, you know, when we talk about Iran, right, so the, the flip side to this is, is the Canadian government says it's all uh, concerned with Iran's, um, uh, you know, nuclear weapons program. And, uh, and, uh, so, you know, the, the best way to, or one of the best ways to, to ensure that Iran doesn't have, doesn't acquire nuclear weapons is to have a, you know, a nuclear weapons free zone in the Middle East that's taken seriously and, and applied, um, you know, overseen rigorously. Um, but the obstacle to that, of course, is Israel's nuclear weapons and also the U S, uh, that sends its, uh, its, uh, um, uh, you know, naval and submarines and whatever that have nuclear weapons um, into the region. So, so uh, the Canadian government, you know, when you when you see the Canadian government uh, go on about concern around Iran's potential nuclear weapons, um, which the Iranian government has said it, it doesn't doesn't want to require, um, and has shown uh, an openness to the idea of a, a nuclear weapons free uh, Middle East, as have many, many, many countries in the region. Um, uh, you know, it's quite a quite a hypocritical uh, position, and uh, and uh, Canada just uh, goes along with uh, with Israel's uh, uh, nuclear uh, nuclear weapons um, uh, program and power. Yeah, you write in the book that in 2012, there was a resolution at the UN calling on Israel's weapons to be brought under the International Energy, Atomic Energy Agency. And there were only six countries that voted against it. Of course, Canada was one of them. You talked about during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the break in the chain of command, or the essentially Canadian military taking its orders from uh, Washington. Uh, but also, in, in, I guess it's in the 60s, you write that uh, Canadian forces were actually negotiating to get nuclear weapons and the, and the civilian leadership didn't even know. Yeah, well, they, there's all kinds of coordination uh, between uh, Canadian military and U.S. military around uh, uh, nuclear weapons. And, uh, and uh, they basically, Canadian military leaders want to uh, try to move towards a uh, something towards more of like a fait accompli before you know bringing in the political leadership, but there there was divisions within um, between uh, external affairs and the military over uh, over nuclear weapons, where external affairs uh, didn't want uh, uh, nuclear weapons, but the military uh, um, uh, wanted it, wanted them. Um, and and uh, also, as mentioned a bit, the military was was you know there were Canadian uh, uh, fighter jets stationed in uh, in Europe that all they had all they had was a uh, uh, a nuclear weapon. Um, uh, I think the um, and so so they uh, you know the Canadian military has been quite supportive of the idea of of acquiring nuclear weapons. And uh, and they, they understand that their um, the you know the the political uh, um, echelon is is you know ambivalent or hostile uh, uh, to those efforts, and they you know they wanted um, 
Canadians trained uh, after World War II. There was all kinds of uh, uh, Canadian uh, military officials that were uh, part of uh, of um, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, testing and the Canadian military throughout that whole period wanted to to ensure that they had the the uh, knowledge and technical capacities uh um to potentially uh you know acquire uh you know Canadian uh, uh made uh nuclear weapons okay so we're going to pick this up in another segment uh we're going to talk, first of all, I have a question, which will start the next, the answer in the next segment, which is, why didn't the Canadian political elites go along with all the, the nuclear weaponization uh, when they seem so willing to go on with most of what else goes on in U.S. foreign policy? So please join us for that. And then we're going to talk about the broader relationship uh, between the Canadian military industrial complex and the American one. Uh, but for now, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Eves. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Again, please don't forget the donate button. It's near the end of the year. I know some people are thinking about giving money at the end of the year. They look at their taxes and all the money they made on the stock exchange. Or you know, I don't know how many of our viewers can afford stock. I have no idea. But anyway, five bucks helps, 500 helps, a dollar, whatever you can do, 5,000 helps even more. Uh, and uh, anyway, thanks a lot for watching. Mm -hmm.